the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky thing, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hear ye! Hear ye! The Colts in session. The Colts in session. Now, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Stop being that fudge. Cause here come the judge. Don't nobody fudge. Cause here come the judge. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. As we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to shift gears and talk about uh, something that's been in the headlines uh, during the uh, last presidential campaign and, more recently, candidate for President uh, Joe Biden made headlines when he promised, if elected, to nominate an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. Now, with the announcement of Justice Stephen Breyer stepping down, um, President Biden has the opportunity as POTUS to fulfill that campaign promise. And we're going to talk to somebody, she's been on the show before talking about her book Shortlisted, and and one of the interesting things about that book is uh, that it talks about women who have been on the shortlist for Supreme Court, including the first black woman to be shortlisted for the Supreme Court. And uh, we're going to talk about that in uh, current events and, and the Supreme Court and more with... Um, a professor uh, from the University of Houston Law Center who also happens to be um, a trustee on the Michigan State University Board. And uh, as I mentioned, she's been on the show before, but I'm, I'm real happy to welcome back Renee Kanake Jefferson, who joins me by phone. Hi, Renee. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Um, let's, let's go back and play catch up a little bit from the last time you were here and talk about your book shortlisted. Um, because it, it was a surprise to me to learn that there had been a black woman on the short list and, and really a lot earlier than we might suspect. That's exactly right. And Frankly, it was surprising to me, too, when I set out to do this research. This book took a decade of going through presidential archives to look back to see who might have been considered by presidents for the Supreme Court. It goes all the way back to the 1930s, by the way, the first time a woman was considered. We can get to that in a second. But it, it wasn't you know, it, in the past. I think people forget 
presidents now are very open about who's on their shortlist, but it wasn't so easy to figure this out. And so when I set on my research to find out if any, when any women had been on the Supreme Court shortlist before Sandra Day O'Connor was the first, I learned there were nine. And as you have noted, one of those women, a, a black woman, she is still alive today. Her name is Amalia Kearse. She sits on the Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals as a judge in senior status. And she, in fact, was on the very same shortlist in 1981 that President Reagan selected Sandra Day O'Connor from to make her our first female Supreme Court justice. And it, it's interesting that um, there was a black woman considered that the reluctance to appoint um, women to the Supreme Court doesn't seem to be to have any real gender differential? Well, what I will say about this is... And and I don't think reluctance is the right word, but the fact that it has taken so long is not necessarily racially driven, but gender driven. Well, I think think it's a, a, a bit of both. So in my study on the, the number of women who were shortlisted before Sandra Day O'Connor became our first female Supreme Court justice, there were actually nine. Going back to the 1930s, FDR shortlisted the first woman. Florence Allen was her name, uh, a judge from Ohio. And of those nine women, only one was a black woman. And I, I think that that reflects the additional burdens and barriers and prejudices that black women, African-American women have faced. And it, and it has borne out, frankly, over time on the U.S. Supreme Court, because it's now some 40 years later that we will finally have a black woman join the court, even though women have been allowed, if you will, on, on the court for, for decades, indeed, you know, really a, a, a lifetime. And so I, I do think that there is something something more um, than just gender. And I also say this because women, the fact that we found Amalia Kearse on the shortlist back in the 1980s tells us that black women have been qualified for the Supreme Court this entire time. And indeed, her credentials, she went to the University of Michigan, actually for law school, um, an excellent law school. She uh, was the first female partner at a Manhattan, New York City law firm for African-American law partner there, uh, highly respected on the Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. And I will tell you, she went on to be considered by presidents from both parties. George H.W. Bush considered her when he was grappling with the possible failure of Clarence Thomas's nomination. And as, as it would turn out, President Clinton considered her for the very seat that Justice Breyer filled, and so now it will finally go to a black woman. That's fascinating. Is there is is there a deeper pool of of candidates um, of of black women uh, that are qualified to be on the Supreme Court now than there would have been, say, back in nineteen in the nineteen eighties when Ronald Reagan? for a shortlisted a black woman? Yes, that's definitely true. Um, and, and certainly a deeper pool than we would have seen in the 70s. I mean, even in the early 70s, there were some law schools that were still prohibiting women from going to law school at all. And uh, most law schools were nothing like they look today. I mean, 
law schools today are admitting women in equal numbers to men, if not greater, but that was not the case in the, the 70s and 80s. So so it is, it is absolutely true that we have a, a deeper pool. And that's part of what's so interesting about Biden's selection now, because there are lots of names being mentioned, and, and every single one of them is more than qualified. And I think that's that's really exciting that uh, the president has such uh, a, a deep pool, if you will, from which to select this next Supreme Court justice. Now, I'm sure there'll be some um, right-left wrangling when it gets to confirmation. But for now, it seems that there are significant numbers of, of uh, representatives on both sides of the aisle from uh, the U.S. Senate that support the idea that this is the time to select a black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. But the idea of of shortlists and selecting candidates demographically, um, is, is that a good thing for the court, or should we be more concerned with the content of their character? Well, whether or not it's a good thing for the court, it's something that has been done through the ages. So President Biden is certainly not the first to limit his pool to women. In fact, President Trump did very recently when he appointed Justice Barrett after Justice Ginsburg passed away. He said that he would appoint a woman. And and before him, Reagan, and then even before Reagan, what I found in my research, uh, often it doesn't didn't happen in the public forums we see today, but behind closed doors, presidents were interested in, well, but it was only men going to the court. They were still looking at demographics. They were interested in geography, for example, what region in the United States a Supreme Court nominee was coming from. They were interested in religion. Uh, They were interested in background in terms of what experience the judge had had before coming to the court. And so those, and, and the way I know this is you know, quite literally, I've looked in the files of these presidential archives <laughs> and I've seen handwritten notes, like from this state or, you know, like too old, you know, uh, you know, age is another, you know, category that's looked at. So, yeah, as to your question about whether or not it's a good thing, um, the, the reality is. And I don't just mean, and I don't just mean in terms of, um, of gender or race, but, um, Political uh, doctrine and and uh, going by past cases and and I'm thinking about really the big two, um, Second Amendment and Roe v. Wade um, positions that have been taken and and I just wonder now that the short lists are more public than they were. Um, hundred years ago and and the um, there is such a divided um, mood in the country um, and and in the Senate where the decision is is made whether to uh, consent or not it's my my question is has has it become a lot more cosmetic Yes, and, and politicized. 
you know, it's, it's become... And that's kind of what I was getting at. I, I didn't yeah. want to make the impression that, that I was saying, you know, we're picking a black woman because she's a black woman. I, I think there's a, a, a history that has evolved on making decisions based on those kinds of considerations. Well, and, and to the point about it being politicized, you know, if there's one, if there's one area of our national life where in an ideal world, we would all be able to come alongside and agree, it would be who is on our Supreme Court. And that, that was the case. I mean, both, both, um, just, so when Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed to the court, even though there was lots of controversy about her nomination, I know this because I, um, I read the files. There were like stacks of letters and telegrams, and someone was keeping track, like pro con against her in the White House office. But at the end of the day, she was confirmed unanimously, and and I think that's a sign of the the senators at the time being willing to set aside their political beliefs. And of course, the main issue that the president was hearing about was concern on how she would vote with respect to abortion. But the senators were able to set aside whatever their political beliefs were and whatever they felt they should represent for their constituents and support her based on her merit for the seat. And you are absolutely right that the court has become increasingly politicized in the appointments in this way. And I, I do think that that is damaging to the credibility of the institution because the public perceives it as just being another political arm and, and it, it shouldn't it should be perceived as neutral and impartial and and the place that you go when you don't want politics to decide but instead you want the law to be applied as it is and I, I do think that that is unfortunate I think a lot of people were surprised by um, by Justice Barrett's um, early votes on the court, I think they were expecting her not to have the the legal depth that she does. Well, she certainly was an academic before she became a a federal appellate court judge on the Seventh Circuit, and so even though she, I think, you know, part of the the question is speculation about what what she would be like as a Supreme Court justice. She hadn't served very long in her role as a, a federal appellate court. Uh, appeals court judge um and it will be interesting to see now this will be the first time in our nation's history that we will have four women sitting on the u.s supreme court and it will also be the first time in the nation's history where we have four women who will represent a real range of viewpoints on some of the most divisive and politicized issues of the day and that that has been the case for much of this court's history, that white men represented an array of political beliefs and philosophies about how to interpret the Constitution and to apply the law. And now we will see four women who will have very different views on some issues. And I think on a lot of issues, you will see three female justices representing the liberal block of the court, and we will be seeing them quite frequently in dissent. It's going to be, uh, that's going to be interesting to be sure. Uh, my guest is Renee Kanake Jefferson, who is uh, an author of um, 
shortlisted women in the shadows of the Supreme Court. Renee, I have to take a short break. Can you stick around for a few minutes? I want to talk about this some more. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website? 
Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, This is the Tom Sumner Program, and we continue our conversation with the author of a book called Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, and we're sort of talking about the uh, the current transition going on with the Supreme Court, um, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, that is, with uh, Professor Ren- uh, Renee Kanake Jefferson, who uh, joins me by phone. Renee, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Um we were talking a little bit about the uh, about the demographics and and about the uh, fact that there's a, a much deeper pool now as uh, President Biden considers uh, his nomination to replace Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court and and fulfilling his promise to uh, select an African American female to be a justice of the Supreme Court. Um, and I, I guess you've been watching this as as closely as um, anybody. What does the short list? What does Biden's short list look like? I, I keep seeing three names popping up. Yeah, and they're probably the three names that I, I'm going to mention right now that I think are the, the most likely. Maybe I'll even give keep a fourth, but. The names that we are seeing and hearing a lot are uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is a judge currently sitting on the D.C. Court, Circuit Court of Appeals. And I just Leander- want to jump in parenthetically there and say um, a lot of times people from that court make it onto the short list, if not the court itself. Well, that's exactly right. Some would say that it is the uh, second most important court in the country, although I, I think your Michigan listeners would probably say the Sixth Circuit <laughs> Federal Court of Appeals is the second most important, right? Because that's, that's our court. Um, but that, that's right. It's often viewed as, and, and not only that, but she, of course, was just confirmed by this very same Senate last year for that seat. So it would be difficult for senators to say she was qualified a year ago to sit on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and then change their vote now. She did receive bipartisan support, too. She was confirmed 52 to 46. So uh, three, three Republicans crossed over to support her. So so if Biden wants a, a you know smooth sailing and a safe bet, I, I think that it would, we will most likely see Justice Jack in, in, in our future. And she has an interesting background in that she combines both some of the traditional things. I mean, all, all of our Supreme Court justices, except for Justice Barrett, either went to Harvard or Yale. She went to Harvard. Um, some would say that we need more diversity there. I certainly agree with that. Um, but she does provide diversity beyond just being a black woman. She would be the only Supreme Court justice who had been a federal public defender earlier in her career. And the reason why that's important is, of course, our public defenders are the lawyers for individuals in uh, facing criminal charges who can't afford a lawyer. And so she would have a, a very different perspective in that sense. So, and there's Katanji Brown-Jackson. And then speaking of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, 
Another name that we've seen a lot is J. Michelle Childs. She was supposed to, last week, go through Senate confirmation hearings for an appointment to that very court. They were put on hold. She is currently sitting on a federal district court of appeals. She is from South Carolina. She went to the University of South Carolina for her law degree. So she would be the only justice who has gone to a, a public university for both law school and undergraduate. Um, and so she's a, another name that, and, and of course she was confirmed for her DC uh, or her uh, lower court, her lower federal court um, role and gearing up for this confirmation in the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. So she is, um, if you will, she's been vetted and she would be at the ready to be vetted again. And then just a couple of other names that we've been seeing I'll mention, although they're probably less likely. One is Leandra Kruger. She is on the California Supreme Court. And then also Sherilyn Eiffel, who is the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. But if I, if I had to place my bets, I'd put them on Katanji Brown-Jackson. And, you know, the other interesting fact about her is that she was a law clerk to Justice Breyer. And so I think there's something about that legacy of a justice retiring and being able to see one of his former clerks sworn in to his seat. Has um, Justice Breyer um, expressed any preferences, or is that just not done? If he has, it's not publicly known. Um, and, I, you know, in terms of is it done? Um, I who knows what conversations he's had with uh, with President Biden or with any of his advisors. But uh, he we we will not see him coming out and publicly endorsing a particular nominee. In fact, uh, he of all justices, I think, would be reluctant to do that because he is a justice who really wants the court to be viewed in a nonpartisan way. And so while we have seen some senators come out and publicly endorse, for example, Lindsey Graham has said he favors J. Michelle Childs, we will not see any members of the Supreme Court coming out with an endorsement like that, Justice Breyer or the others. Well, he's supporting someone from South Carolina. I'm sorry, Justice Breyer? No, no, no. Um... Lindsey Graham. Lindsey yeah, Graham. Exactly. You know, exactly. it's it's somebody from the home team. Is right. You know, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That seems that that seems kind of appropriate. Um, oh yeah, I was, and I'm not. I'm not suggesting that it's inappropriate. I'm just. I'm just observing that there is a difference in terms of how the justices would uh, approach this issue versus the senator. Given the fact that. Um, if, if one of these two that you're suggesting are the front runners um, were to be confirmed and, and start sitting on the Supreme Court, it will not change the perceived balance of power with the, the six to three conservative majority. It would stay the same. Um, but what do you think would be significantly different about the court going forward? Um, is it um, the the fact that that 
nearly half the women on the court will be, or nearly half the justices on the court will be women. Um, will it be the presence of another African-American uh, justice? What, what are the things that would, um, that might have an impact on uh, some of the deliberations and rulings going forward? Well, you're absolutely right that it's not going to change the 6-3 divide on the kinds of issues where we see the strong conservative majority acting as a block. But that doesn't diminish in any way the importance and the significance of this appointment and the presence of a, a black woman on the Supreme Court. And I think there are at least a, a couple of reasons why this is so important. The first goes to institutional legitimacy. So this is a step toward the U.S. Supreme Court more accurately reflecting the public that it serves, and that goes to how or, and whether or not the public believes it is a credible institution. And then also related to that, I think that it is will be Im important, even though these three women will likely find themselves in, in the minority on, on issues that matter a lot to women. So here I'm talking about Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and the, the soon-to-be-nominated justice who will join them. How they write those dissents matters. It matters because we know over time dissents can do a couple of things. One they can eventually plant the seeds to become majority opinions as the, as the court is shaped and evolved. And two, they can call to action responses to a court's decision. For example, turning out legislative action. The most obvious example of that is Justice Ginsburg's very famous dissent involving the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, where the Supreme Court did not give Lilly Ledbetter the back pay she was owed for pay discrimination. But then President Obama and Congress passed and signed into law the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. So there's an important role for, for that block of justices to play, even when they're in dissent. And then the last reason why I think it matters, it matters so much, is that this will be an opportunity in our national life, very similar, I hope, in, in the way it was when Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed for the court for us to come together and really celebrate this milestone in our national history. Young girls, young black girls across the country are going to be inspired to become lawyers, to become judges, and indeed whatever profession they choose to reach for and importantly attain the highest ranking, the highest position in that profession. And so I think that this is a really exciting time and a time where this country is divided about so many things. I hope this is a moment where we can come together and celebrate. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, Ginsburg um, or as I always refer to her, the notorious RBG. Um, <laughs> yes. When she was extremely outspoken, both as a member of the court, but also um, as a personality as she became later in life um, and, and later in her tenure on the court, who fills that role now of, of being the loud dissenting voice? Well, that's a great question. I mean, there's right now it's, it's Justice Sotomayor 
uh, I, I think is the one who has been most willing to speak very strongly in dissent and um, sometimes publicly as well. But I think that you've also identified there's a vacuum there still. And so whomever President Biden appoints might step in and, and, and may very well fill that role. It, and by contrast, we're also seeing increasing scrutiny of, at least at the moment, the more conservative justices who are uh, going out and, and speaking in, in, in private groups behind closed doors, not allowing reporters in. And so I think that's uh, another interesting dynamic that's now present on the court. And um, it will be interesting to see if, if that changes. And, um, and part of how it might could very well be based on who joins this court. Do you think that um, there seems to be some split on uh, procedure? Um, Chuck Schumer would like to see uh, the the Senate go after this very, very quickly and sort of repeat from the Democratic side what Republicans did during the confirmation of uh, um, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and and the White House doesn't seem to be in as much of a hurry. Do you think this will go very quickly? Will we see uh, someone sitting on the on the Supreme Court before the midterm elections in Breyer's seat? Um, yes. I so I I anticipate that we will know the president's choice by the end of this month. And I think it's highly likely that the confirmation will be complete by the end of March. But I, I would anticipate Justice Breyer serving out the remainder of his term and then the new Supreme Court justice being in place and ready for the opening of the October 2022 term. The first Monday of October. Exactly. Um, so yes, in place just just barely, but in place before the uh, November midterms. Um, I'm, and the reason that I ask about that because there was an election looming when Barrett was confirmed. True. But but yeah. you think right. the the uh, the confirmation? Yeah, you you really think the confirmation will go down in thirty days, or or will it run a tad longer? I mean, it, it might, it, it's possible that there could be some procedural delays or maneuvering, but the reality is that the Democrats do control the Senate, and assuming that uh, Biden selects a, uh, a nominee that every, all of the Democrats agree on, then that uh, helps give the Democrats the leverage to control the timeline here. And you're right, there was an election looming uh, and in fact, <laughs> there have been elections looming for um, more than one vacancy that's been filled on the court. But here, it's not a, um, a presidential election that's looming. And so, I mean, that's some true. might say, well, but, but you know, maybe senators will change. But, it, but I do think it makes a difference in that um, we don't have a presidential election looming. And I, I think that also might have been part of Breyer's 
reason for announcing his retirement when he did, so that this vacancy isn't being filled just months before a presidential election. Yeah, that's true, and and I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, I, I hadn't really taken into consideration that one of the reasons that that was so controversial um, for the Barrett uh, confirmation was that presidents could change, and a different president might make a different might make a different nomination. Yes. Yes. Well, this is certainly going to be uh, interesting to watch. What, you, um, getting away from, you know, the idea of of candidates and and filling the the bench. What do you think are going to be some of the big decisions that that we're going to see coming out in May? And uh, you, well, it's usually we- mostly in May, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, so the court will start releasing opinions, um, you know, over the coming months. But but typically, the most controversial topics are delayed till the end. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> so, yeah, I think in May we will probably be seeing, you know, uh, what happens to Roe v. Wade in the opinion that will come out of the whole women's health case, and that, um, you know, that I think is going to probably overshadow um, whether wrong or right uh, all other decisions from this term. I think that the outcome of that case has the potential to absolutely have an impact on midterm elections. And uh, also, well, um, I think um, assuming that it overturns Roe v. Wade, it will also have a real impact on elections in states, especially in states where they um, like here in Michigan, the um, there is actually a, a law that prohibits abortion on the books, but because of Roe v. Wade, it's not enforced, and so um, there would have to be legislative action to change that. The states that are in that situation, I think um, Roe v. Wade had, or the the outcome to Whole Woman's Health and the whether or not Roe v. Wade survives, and if it does, in what limited form it does, has the most potential to not only dominate the headlines in terms of what did the Supreme Court do this term, but also in terms of driving out votes at both the federal and state level this fall. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch uh, as it goes forward and, and to see what, you know, what Breyer does in terms of filling out his term and, and how he'll vote and what things he might write in his final days. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously very mindful of leaving a legacy. There is uh, even a sense of that when he appeared with President Biden announcing his retirement. And, you know, he uh, very much wants to see this country's experiment with democracy continue to succeed. He wants the court not to be politicized. And um, my guess is that once he's no longer on the bench, we may hear more from him on those themes and uh, a willingness to maybe speak out even more publicly about them. Who was it that that just spoke out? Uh, was it was it Kennedy? Um, I guess I'm not sure what you're referring I, uh, to. There was uh, there was a speech and and he made some observations about 
um, and and I can't remember which justices, which justice it was. It was somebody who's not currently on the court, and um, they were speaking at, at 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 a dinner somewhere or at a university, and they made some comments about the direction of the Supreme Court that were a little uncharacteristic for a justice, and and I just wondered if you remembered the remarks or who said them. I, well, I, I know that um, justices have been on the speaking tour quite a bit as of late, and I think Justice Barrett got a lot of play um, in, in her comments that she didn't want the court to seem, you know, partisan, and maybe even partisan hacks was the language that was um, used. And I, I think that <laughs> all of the justices are, in their various ways, speaking out about that. And the... Um, the, the more they do that, though, of course, the more it, it seems that they, you know, they're protesting a bit too much, if you know what I mean, um, <laughs> rather than... Well, rather every than time I talk to... partisan, right? Show us. Every time I talk to um, someone about the Supreme Court, um, various uh, judges, and, and, and I've talked to several state Supreme Court ju- judges... And they always claim to be rule of law judges, and that um, you know that that's that's the first rule of being a judge on a body like the the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you think, by and large, they are, or have we succumbed to the same political divide? on the court as as we're seeing at the polls and in the well of the legislature. Well, this is where it gets interesting in terms of one's judicial philosophy and and how they interpret the Constitution and how they apply law. And so you have a justice like Justice Breyer who believes that the Constitution is a living Constitution, so it sets out parameters, and then over time it's up to us as a nation to... um, more um, help it more fully realize rights for everyone that were intended uh, when it was created. And then the judicial philosophy of others on the bench, so Justice Scalia, who is no longer on the bench, of course, but most famously an originalist, and uh, you know Justice Barrett is certainly, I would put her in that camp, Justice Gorsuch, um, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, focused on, uh, and, and, and Justice Thomas, uh, you know, focused on originalism and the text of the Constitution. And what what happens then, of course, is, um, you know, depending on how one applies their philosophy of interpreting the Constitution and interpreting the law, that can ultimately lead to an outcome that is extremely political in terms of the results that that uh, that one uh, attains. So one can say, no, I'm just applying the text as it reads when actually the outcome is denying rights, but another justice would say, no, the Constitution set out these rights, and it's up to us to recognize them. And so that's that's a debate that my students in my constitutional law classes uh, enjoy having. And I, I, one thing I do hope is that the more the Supreme Court is in the news and the more it is focused on, even in a political way, the more interested the public becomes in learning about how the court works, about how the government works, about how uh, rights and entitlements are determined, and uh, and also how, how fragile they can be. And Renee, so, 
that. Public is. education is a benefit that's a good. Renee, I have to take another break here. Um, can I implore you to uh, stick around a little bit longer so we can talk a few more minutes and wrap things up proper? Sure. All right. Uh, we'll be back with more right Hello after there, this. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacle that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We uh, wrap up this segment uh with our conversation with the author of Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, uh, law professor uh, Renee Kanake Jefferson, who uh, has been with me this hour. And uh, Renee, welcome back. Thanks again for uh, for sticking around. Absolutely. Um, Renee, I mentioned I mentioned the book, and and you were on when the book first came out, and we talked about you know some of the historical significance. But um, is the book experiencing a little bit of a, a resurgence now that uh, there's another seat on the Supreme Court being considered? It is, and as luck would have it, we have a paperback edition of the book that will be out on February fifteenth with a new foreword from a woman named Melissa Murray, who is a law professor at New York Law School. And she actually, her name has been floated uh, as someone who may be on Biden's shortlist as well. She is an an academic and uh, a legal commentator. So her foreword is a part of that book. And um, even though it's, it's still a little bit disappointing to be launching yet another book in the middle of the pandemic. It's really exciting timing that the book is coming out in paper book, the, a paperback at the very same time that Justice Breyer made his announcement. Yeah, I, I would think that the, that it would get a little bit more attention. And, and I think we talked about that when you were on the show before about the, uh, the impact of the pandemic on trying to release a book. Yeah. Um, but um, let me ask this, um, and, and of course the pandemic is still managing to get in the way, um, but, uh, but what's, what's next for you? Well, that's a great question. Um, for now, I'm spending a lot of time focusing on this and talking about this topic, but here at home in Michigan, I will be running to keep my seat on the Michigan State University Board of Trustees. So that's also going to be keeping me busy. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm a writer, so I'm always thinking about what will the next project be? What are the next questions I want to answer? That's what led me to this shortlisted project. You know, I wanted to find out how many other women had been considered for the court before O'Connor. And so I will be looking into more questions like that and writing about them in the future. So hopefully you'll have me back again when I continue to keep engaging in these research projects. Well, and I, you know, I was uh, thinking a little bit, I was listening during the break, and and we do a weekly uh, political roundtable and wondered if you would... uh, would like to join us. We have an open third chair. I, I have somebody on the right and somebody on the left, and every week we spend a couple hours uh, going through local, state, and national headlines in politics and current events. 
Um, but but we we have this open third chair. Wondered if you'd like to sit third chair uh, sometime with us. That'd be great. I would really enjoy it. Thank you. I, we'll have to get some emails going back and forth and compare calendars and so on. But uh, but but I think you would enjoy it. I think you would find it fun, and you would be a significant contribution to the conversation, without a doubt. But I just uh, but I brought it up to see uh, you know if you had another book in the works. Uh, you know if we were going to see one uh, called you know confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Right, or selected, right? Yeah. <laughs> shortlisted no longer. <laughs> Making it off the short list. Well, and, exactly. and that might be kind of an interesting look. Is, is there some qualification, some uh, set of circumstances that uh, the women who made it to the Supreme Court have in common? Yes, and now that we will actually have, you know, a, a whole handful who have served, there's, you know, there's, there's increasingly a critical mass where that, that those kinds of questions can absolutely be asked and addressed. Well, and some, some significant differences. I mean, when you look at Ginsburg and Coney and Sotomayor and, and now, you know, who, whoever fills uh, Stephen Breyer's seat, there are going to be significant differences but what are the things they had in common that got them from the short list to the bench? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I, I imagine the lessons that I would be able to draw from that are things that would not only get women to the Supreme Court, but would help women navigate professional life in general. Well, yeah, exactly. Anyway, Renee, thank you so much for spending time with uh, me and the listeners this morning. And, and as you know, I always ask guests, uh, to share with listeners where the listeners might find out more about what we're talking about. Obviously, the book is uh, a great place to start, but um, to, to get a better understanding of you and your work, past, present, and future, do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. I actually, I, I'll give you a couple. So one is for the book, and that's easy, www.shortlistedbook.com. And then for listeners who want to learn a little bit more about me and the work I do as a Michigan State University trustee, that one is www.trustjefferson.com. Renee, thank you so much. The time has just flown by. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Again, Renee Kanake Jefferson. And uh, she is the, a legal scholar and author of Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. And we'll have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. The court's in session. The court's in session now. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the Cause here come the judge Don't nobody budge Cause here come the judge Judge Shorty is presiding today And he don't take no stuff from nobody No kind of way Hey boy, take off that hat Where do you think you're at? I know where you gon' be If you don't eat my meat I'm here to tell you 
In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus And if you got a better cough in your arm And if you got a better... <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say If you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away Super damn important that we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation Will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation It's super damn important that we practice isolation If we don't do it then we're all gonna die If we don't do it then we're all gonna die And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised Oh super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine the last until July A super bad, transmittable Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.